Hilda Lisowitz was a guard at the Belsen concentration camp for six weeks in 1945. She was charged with war crimes and was found guilty and sentenced to one year in prison. Was the court's finding fair and just? The facts about Hilda Lisowitz are very simple. She was born on the 31st of January 1922. At the start of the war she had a job as a gardener. From October 1940 to March 1941 she did her six months with the Reichsarbeitsdienst, the German National Labour Service. Then she worked home and worked in a railway buffet, as station restaurants used to be called. From February 1943 until November 1944 she worked in a munitions factory and in late 1944 was conscripted into the SS. She arrived at Belsen on the 3rd of March 1945 and was put to work in the kitchens overseeing the peeling of potatoes. The charge against her at the Belsen trial was that she had conspired with others to ill-treat eight Allied prisoners and had caused their deaths. Many have claimed that she was a vicious, depraved sadist but that is not a crime in international law, and it is not the subject of this talk. Evidence against her was presented by two former prisoners who had identified her from photographs shown to them. Let me now comment on the way the identification of suspects was conducted. The British War Crimes Investigation Team had been tasked with bringing war criminals to justice, and in their inquiries at Belson they had, it would appear, gone round the camp asking if anyone had seen guards doing anything which was criminal. Some prisoners responded positively, and then, to identify the guard thought to be responsible, the investigator would show the complainant a set of photographs and ask him, or her, to identify the culprit. Normally, this would be a relatively satisfactory means of identifying suspects, but the investigators made the mistake of offering their potential witnesses only photographs of guards at Belson. It was therefore a case, as the defence said, of every card a winner. If the witness mistakenly fingered Schmidt instead of Brown, Schmidt would find himself in the dock, not Brown. A more intelligent and vastly fairer way of conducting the process would have been to present potential witnesses with a series of photographs, some of which would have been of people with no connection with Belson. And just to show how unreliable identification can be, the investigators perhaps for their own amusement, introduced into the series of photographs one of General Montgomery. They said they were surprised at how often he was firmly identified as a Belson guard and war criminal. Now, whether we can identify someone from a photograph is likely to be influenced by how well we know that person. I suggest that if, say, you work with someone every day, you will find it easier to identify that person than someone whom you have seen for only a few minutes some months previously. Let us now turn to the two witnesses. I shall deal with them separately. Firstly, Alexandra Sividova. She was a 21-year-old Russian woman and made a sworn written statement called an affidavit in which she made two allegations. She said, and I quote, A. I have on many occasions seen her beat women with a rubber truncheon for trying to steal extra food. And B. On numerous occasions I have seen Lisevitz strike prisoners on the head with a rubber truncheon, knocking them down and then kicking them on the floor. 
When these allegations were put to Lisa Fitz at the trial, she replied, That is not true. No, I never beat anybody near the kitchen. There was no evidence from another witness to corroborate Sividova's allegation, and therefore this was a matter of one person's word against another's. Whose word should the court believe? Let's assume that, for whatever reason, uh, the court was to believe that of Sividova. We must then, of course, be clear what she meant by these statements. She beat women may appear to be very clear, but what exactly is meant by beat? When does a tap become a knock, a blow, a beating? Could it include, say, shoving the prisoners away from food as they tried to grab it? And kicking? Could you not describe a kick as anything from a full-force blow with a heavy boot to a light tap with a shoe? The answers to those questions are essential if we are to understand the nature of the assaults that Lisevitz has claimed to have made upon the prisoners. Unfortunately, Sividova didn't appear in court, and therefore those questions could not be put to her. The court was left in ignorance. Striking prisoners on the head with a rubber truncheon and knocking them down is a far more serious matter. It could indicate that a charge of attempted murder, or even murder, might have been more appropriate. But serious charges require serious evidence, and in my view a couple of lines in an affidavit by a witness who did not appear at the trial do not count. If you are in any doubt, ask yourself how many defendants have been convicted in England of murder on the sole basis of a two-line statement from a witness who was not present. Now, understand clearly that I am not claiming that Sividova was not telling the truth. She might have been. What I do say, however, is that we have to know, beyond all reasonable doubt, what Sividova is claiming Lisa Fitz did, and then we have to be certain, again beyond all reasonable doubt, that Lisa Fitz actually did it. The second witness, a Greek woman by the name of Dora Almalay, also presented her evidence by affidavit. Let me read it in full. She said, one day in April 1945, whilst at Belson, I was one of a working party detailed to carry vegetables from the store to the kitchen by means of a handcart. In charge of this working party was Lisevitz. Whilst I was on this job, I allowed two male prisoners, whose names I do not know, to take two turnips off the cart. Lisevitz saw me do this, and she pushed the men, who were very weak to the ground, and then beat them on their heads with a thick stick, which she always carried. She then stamped on their chests, in the region of the heart, with her jackboots. The men lay still, clutching the turnips. Lisevitz then got hold of me, and shook me until I started to cry. She then said, Don't cry, or I'll kill you too. She then turned away, and after fifteen minutes I went up to the men and touched them to see if they were still alive. I formed the opinion that they were dead. I felt their hearts and could feel nothing. They were cold to the touch, like dead men. I then went away, leaving the bodies lying there, and I do not know what happened to them. My first point is that the incident happened one day in April, and the affidavit was not signed until the 13th of June, two months later, perhaps more. More significantly, we do not know whether Lisevitz was well known to Almalay, or if Almalay was in this working party by chance and for only a few minutes, and never saw Lisevitz again.
We do not know these things, nor did the court, and yet they were crucially important if the court was to form an accurate view of the credibility of Almalay's evidence. And now the evidence itself. The criticisms I have made of the evidence given by Sivadova also appear here, but I make two further points. The men might have died, or they might not. Again, we do not know. And there is no evidence from any other witness corroborating the evidence given by Almalay. Once again, it is one witness's word against Lisevitz's. Now I remind you that the charge against Lisevitz was that she was a member of a conspiracy to ill-treat eight Allied prisoners and had caused their deaths. The evidence against her and which we have discussed above was only relevant in so far as it was evidence that she was a member of that conspiracy. She might indeed have killed the two men she pushed to the ground, but unless they had been allies, and no evidence was brought to the court to prove that they were, then their murder under this charge would not have been an offence. At the end of the trial, the five British officers, who were the judges, retired, and in the eight minutes or so which they allowed themselves to consider her case, they decided that they were satisfied, beyond all reasonable doubt, that she was guilty of the charge. She was, in their finding, a conspirator to ill-treat Allied prisoners and to cause the deaths of eight of them, and for this offence she was sentenced to one year in prison. Other guards at the camp, one thinks of Irma Gracer, were found guilty on the same charge, but were sentenced to death. On the face of it, that does not appear fair, but unfortunately the court did not give its reasoning. There was no means of appealing the decision. Did the court come to the right decision? You must form your own view. Thank you.